If you would turn in your Bibles to the book of John, we're going to be looking at the last section of the seventh chapter this morning. The responses and reactions to Jesus' words at the Feast of Booths. Our text this morning will be John chapter 7, verses 40 through 52. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely authoritative. And the word of the Lord is completely sufficient. John chapter 7, beginning at verse 40. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, where the village of David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him. But no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Lord, we come to you this morning, and we ask that you would open up your word to us. Make it not mere words on a page, or sounds that we hear, but your word is life, O Lord. Make your word take deep root in our hearts, that we would be changed, that we would see the Lord Jesus Christ in all of his glory, and we would desire to serve him. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. We may wonder why there is so much opposition to Jesus Christ in our world today. We're seeing it today in America. But we see that opposition even more so throughout the rest of the world. Why does Jesus cause divisions among people? Why can't the world find some kind of middle ground, a safe place? John shows us this morning a picture of the world divided by the claims and person of Jesus Christ. He shows us these divisions among the people, And he shows us divisions among their leaders as well. It is the same as the situation is today. 
Jesus and the gospel of Jesus Christ divides families, cities, nations, people groups. When Jesus is presented as he is in the truth of God's word, he will bring division. And so this morning I would like us to look at our text in two parts. There are two paragraphs to our text. In the first paragraph, we see a division that occurs among the people, the common people of the day. And then in the second paragraph, we see a division among the leaders. Two divisions among two different types of people. Let's look then first at the division among the people. This first group John calls the people in verse 40. It refers to a large group of people. There's no specific reference here. We might translate it as the crowd. You might think, for example, of a large sporting event. There are people from all walks of life, from all different areas. They come together around a sporting event and they form a large crowd together. That's what John is describing here. All these sorts of people from various parts of Israel are come to Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths. You might think of another example of a crowd or a large group of people at a shopping mall. People driving different types of cars, living in different houses, having different numbers of children in their family, gathered together and walking amongst each other in the mall. There would be some differences among this crowd, but there are a great many more commonalities. All of this crowd comes from basically the same place, from Israel. They all speak the same language. They all have the same culture. They all have the same history. They actually have much more in common than they do differentiating them. It's not as if John is saying, here's a group of Jews and Romans and Greeks and Egyptians. If that were the case, we might expect division. We might expect conflict to fall out along those lines. And so it's important for us to remember their commonalities as we see their different responses to Jesus. Those different responses are not a result of differences amongst themselves. Well, what are they responding to in our text? You may remember that last week when we looked at the middle section of chapter 7, we saw Jesus give the clearest and most public call of the gospel yet. Remember, we are at the high point of the feast here. And Jesus basically takes over the feast. He stands up and shouts, If you want hope, if you want to be satisfied, you need to come to me. He basically takes over the feast. Now, remember last week, what we saw was that the language Jesus used was the culmination of all of the Old Testament prophecies around the Feast of Booths. It was very clear what Jesus was saying and what he meant. And John tells us that this group heard that and could not agree about Jesus. 
There is a division, John says, in verse 43. A division amongst the people. Now, this word for division is a Greek word. This occurs on occasion. It's a word you would know well. It's the word schism in the Greek. It means to split, to tear apart, to crack. You might picture in your mind's eye a very large rock that is split down the middle. And we understand this Greek word schism. We use it to describe a major split, a break that cannot be mended. That's what John is describing for us here. We need to see from the very beginning that Jesus divides. Believing in Jesus is not some kind of kumbaya moment where everyone feels good and agrees. That only occurs when we hide who Jesus is. When we make Jesus into our image so that we can find false agreement and avoid division, we avoid the Jesus of the Bible. Here Jesus has given a clear gospel call. And the result is division. So we should expect the same when the gospel call goes out today in our world. We should expect to see division. Well, this first portion of the group has an idea about Jesus. They say in verse 40, this really is the prophet. Now, I want you to notice two things in their statement. The first is capital P, prophet. And the second is the word really. Now, what are they doing here? We've talked about the capital P, prophet, before. You remember that this is in reference to what Moses said in Deuteronomy 18. He said that the Lord will raise up among you a prophet like unto me, but that that prophet will be greater. And so the Israelites took to referring to this person as simply the prophet. Now, if they weren't writing and they weren't putting a capital P, I can imagine again in my mind's eye that there would be maybe a certain tone of voice that they would use. Or a hushed tone. You know, the prophet. Not just any old prophet. This is the prophet. And you have to understand that by the prophet, they actually mean a prophet greater than Isaiah, greater than Jeremiah, greater than Ezekiel, greater than Jonah. They mean the forerunner to the Messiah. And this is an important figure, this prophet. It is the one who would, he would be the one who would follow Moses and would lead Israel like him. Now, who wouldn't want another Moses? Moses led them out of Egypt in slavery. Moses led them through the wilderness. Moses got the Ten Commandments from the hand of God. And you can understand and see in the events of just the past few chapters, that Jesus would have reminded them of Moses. Moses brought manna from heaven by praying to God. Jesus fed thousands by giving them bread. Moses split the rock and water came forth so that the Israelites could drink. Jesus told them, I will bring you living water. So you can see how they make that connection. And they're sure about it. It's this word, really. Now, really is not a filler here. I know oftentimes, many of us use filler words. Really, literally, 
even um. If you're not sure if you do that, I encourage you to record yourself and listen. There was a time in which I thought I never used the word um ever until my wife made me listen to an interview I gave. But it's no filler here. Really in the Greek means in truth, surely, certainly. They are sure that that's who Jesus is. He's the prophet. Now, there would have been others who had come before and maybe claimed to be the prophet, and they would have disappointed. But you see, this portion of the group says, don't worry about them. This guy's the real deal. And the, the prophet had very big shoes to fill. Not anyone could be the prophet. This group is leaning in the right direction. But they didn't see and believe in Jesus. That leads us to a second group. John calls them others in verse 41. This is the same crowd, a second portion within them. And they have a different assessment of Jesus. And they're just as sure they know who Jesus is. Do you see what they say in verse 41? This is the Christ. Now notice there is no language like maybe, or could it be, or I think it might be either in verse 40 or in verse 41. This is the Christ. They are certain also. But their response is different than the response of the first group. They say he's not the prophet. He's the Christ. Now that is a major statement. They see Jesus as the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. All of Old Testament prophecy. Surely what is running through their minds is what we've been saying that they expected of the Messiah. That here is the man who will free us from Rome. Who will raise us up to glory. He is our ticket to deliverance, power, and glory. He's the Messiah. Now they don't say that directly. But we've seen that attitude over and over again in John's Gospel. That's what they expect the Messiah to be. So that's what's on their mind. Now we might ask, why the difference? One group says the prophet, the other group says the Messiah. Isn't it the case, pastor, that the prophet is the Messiah? That they're the same one? Didn't we just see that in our evening sermon series, Shadows of Christ? That the prophet, to come after Moses, is the Messiah? Well, Moses was predicting an aspect of the Messiah's work. In Deuteronomy 18. His work as a prophet. And both of these groups here now are showing their ignorance of scripture. You see they view the prophet as kind of a forerunner to Christ. A John the Baptist figure. That he would come first and pave the way. That he would speak God's word. And then the Messiah would come and would overthrow their oppressors and be their king. Now, we know from the scriptures, especially the New Testament, that Jesus fulfills three offices of the Messiah, the Christ. He is our prophet. He speaks to us the word of God. But he is also our priest. He sacrificed himself that we might find atonement and redemption. And he is also our king who defends us and rules over us. Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, is all three of these offices. He executes them all. 
But these two groups did not know their scriptures well. Therefore, they were confused, and this caused a division. Now, there's one more important thing to see here. This second group's statement about the Christ doesn't affect them much. It's more of a, of a conversation piece than a call to faith. Like, look, yeah, that guy over there, yeah, he's the Christ. Yeah, okay, let's go get lunch. Do you notice here? They don't call everyone to follow the Christ. They don't even begin following the Christ. It's just a a matter-of-fact statement. Noticing something about Jesus is not enough. We've seen this before, too, haven't we, in this gospel? People can believe facts about Jesus without believing in Jesus. What we have here is someone who knows facts about Jesus. But what we know must be true is that what we know about Jesus has to change our lives. It has to lead us to surrender to Jesus. Now right away, with no pause, there's a third group. We see them also in verse 41 in the second half. But some said, this is a third group, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David? That he comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? Now this group interrupts. They don't want to hear this Messiah business. They probably don't want to hear about the prophet either. Immediately they shut down the other two groups. They're essentially saying, don't you know anything? He can't be the Messiah. He can't be the Christ. Now, There's an irony here, because their proof of that shows their ignorance. If you haven't seen this before, John loves to do this. He reports how people say things thinking they are so wise, and we know they don't know what they're talking about. They've missed the boat. They don't know the facts. They're acting in ignorance. They say, you know Christ can't come from Galilee. And they, cha- they quote chapter and verse. The prophet Micah says, Bethlehem is going to be where he comes from. And he's from the line of David. We could talk about that. We could go back to 2 Samuel and find it there. Case closed. Now, what they're doing is not unlike what you and I see every day on social media. People just say things, and they say they're an authority, and you have to accept it because they've said it. I think one of my favorite illustrations of this is there is uh, an image on social media that says, everything that is on the internet must be true, quoted Abraham Lincoln. Stop and think about that for a minute. You see, just saying something doesn't make it true. Just saying it's authoritative doesn't make it true. They know part of what the Bible says, but they obviously don't know all of what's going on here. They pull out their Bibles and they say, see, it's, it's right here. And it's really hard for us not to laugh at them. Why do they reject Jesus' call at the feast? Well, he's not of the line of David. Well, he's not from Bethlehem. He's from Galilee. 
And of course, we know that Jesus is from the line of David, both on his mother's side and on his legal father's side. And we know Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Even the youngest kids here today know the story of Jesus being born in the manger because there was no room at the inn in Bethlehem because Joseph and Mary had to go to Bethlehem. We all know that. Why don't they? Well, it's because they don't really know Jesus. They haven't made any effort because if they really made an effort to find out who Jesus was, it wouldn't matter whether they knew where he was born. They would know that where he came from was heaven above, that he's God himself, that he is the redeemer, that he is the promised one, that he is the creator of all things, including themselves. But they think they know better. You see, this group doesn't really want to know. They just want to get rid of Jesus. They want to send him away. They want to make sure he doesn't affect their lives. And this is something that we see all the time. People take the Bible out of context or ignorantly, without knowledge. They make it say things that it doesn't really say to meet their purpose. Why? Because they're committed to unbelief. They don't want to believe in Jesus, so they won't believe in Jesus. Examine your heart today. Do you believe in Jesus? If not, why? What is keeping you from Jesus? That brings us to our second paragraph and the leaders. In verse 45, the officers come back to the chief priests and Pharisees. And you should remember these officers from last week. They were given an arrest warrant in verse 32. They were sent out to arrest Jesus. They were to go and drag Jesus before the Sanhedrin for trial and for execution. And now imagine the surprise as they come back to the chief priests and the Pharisees. They come back empty-handed. Why? Well, the answer that we know is that Jesus' time hadn't come yet. We've seen this over and over again. John reminds us, that Jesus will be arrested, that he will be tortured, that he will be killed, that he will be put in the grave, but in the Father's time. And when that hour has come, his work of redemption will come forward. But until then, it is not his hour. We know that, but they don't know that. They don't believe that. And the officer's answer to them is even more surprising than the truth. They look at the chief priests and Pharisees and say, no one ever spoke like this man. Now, I want you to imagine in your mind's eye the facial expressions of the Pharisees. With their mouths open and their eyes all agog. What? We gave you one job. This was not complex. You had one job. We even gave you a piece of paper to tell you what your job was. You were supposed to go and to arrest Jesus and to bring him. How could you fail so badly? Now, to understand that, we need to know who the officers are. We might be sitting here thinking that these are policemen. 
that they're the Jerusalem police force. They're detectives who are being sent to read Jesus' rights and handcuff him and bring him back to the Sanhedrin. That's not the case. We might think that they're the Israelite army, that they're soldiers who are going to grab Jesus and bring him back to the leaders. That's not the case either. They're certainly not the Romans exercising Roman military authority. These officers are part of the temple organization. Now, they are not priests, but remember, not every Levite is a priest. When God was giving out land to all of the 12 tribes, he did not give land to the Levites because he was their inheritance. And they were to work in the tabernacle and then later in the temple. But not every one of them was a priest. There were many jobs to be done in and around the temple. And that's who these men are. They are Levites. Now, why is that important? This means they know their Bibles. If I can put it to you this way, they're church workers. They know their theology. They know their Bibles. They're not as ignorant as this crowd that we've been talking about. And when they heard Jesus, they were affected by his words. Actually, affected is too weak a word. They were stunned by his words. Now, does that mean they understood everything? No. Does that mean that they believed in Jesus? No, it doesn't seem so. But it sure did stop them in their tracks to hear Jesus. They saw the authority that Jesus spoke with. That was clear in verse 46. No one ever spoke like this man. I mean, do you hear the implication in that? He speaks in a way that you can't, chief priests, that you can't, Pharisees, that the king can't. That's how much authority he has when he speaks. There's something distinct, special about this man. Now, this is commonly something the Bible talks about. Perhaps the best example of this is after the Sermon on the Mount, it's described of Jesus' teaching that he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. We might put it this way. The Pharisees might have dazzled someone with facts and references, but they never reached the heart. They didn't have authority. Jesus did. When he spoke, it stuck with people. It affected their heart. You've had that happen to you, haven't you? When someone says something to you and its effect on you is far greater than the words used, it strikes you. It's something you think about over and over again. It's something you want to know more about. It's something you think you need to do and obey. That's the kind of authority Jesus spoke with. You see, he's a man, but he doesn't speak like any man we know. Now, maybe you're sitting here this morning and you can identify with this. You hear the words of Jesus in the Bible, in this Gospel of John. And you recognize that they are unlike all of the chatter in the world around you. They affect you deeply. They call to you. So much more than posts on social media or conversations that you have with friends. Will you acknowledge that Jesus is like no other person? Because he isn't. 
He does not speak like any other man because he is more than a man. He is God. He can speak with God's authority, with God's wisdom, with God's mercy and grace. But the second group of leaders will have none of that. Notice how quickly and harshly they respond to the officers in verses 47 through 49. Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Now, do you see here that they don't ask, what did he say? They don't even ask, what did you find impressive about what he said? They're not interested in finding any of that out. They essentially respond with three insults. First, they say, are you deceived? You've got to be fooled. The only people that would listen to him or go to him would be fools. You must be deceived. You're not in your right minds, officers. Clear your heads. And then their second insult is, have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? Of course what he's saying is false. We don't believe it. And we are the smartest, best guys around. If we don't believe it, it ain't true. We're the best. Doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. That's what they're saying. Can you just hear the pride in that? Maybe you've come across someone like that in your own life. Someone will say, you know, no one believes this Bible stuff. No one believes God actually created the world. None of the PhDs or biologists or anyone actually believe that. Now, the irony is, is that there are hundreds and hundreds of PhDs and biologists that believe the Bible's story of creation. And the irony is that there are some amongst the Pharisees who believe in Jesus. John tells us that. So they don't even know their own group. But what they're interested in is pride and arrogance and stomping down. That's what they're doing. And they culminate this with their third insult. You know, this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. You know, that crowd that's around Jesus, making rumors around Jesus... They don't know anything in the law. And you know what it means to not know anything in the law? You can't please God. And you know what it means that you can't please God? You're cursed. If the crowd wanted to be right with God, they would be with us, sitting at our feet, learning the law. There's nothing to these people. This is an example of a group of people that knows they're right, and doesn't want to hear anything else. This response to Jesus is that he can't be believed, he can't be followed, because he doesn't fit my view of the world. I know what I need, and it's not him. There's a real danger in thinking that you have everything figured out. Humility is not just a state of mind. Humility allows us to see the truth and not be blinded by our own preferences. Are you willing to give up your preferences? To give up your assumptions and follow Jesus? Then there's a third group. 
Well, it's not really a group, it's just Nicodemus. We've seen him before in chapter 3. He is friendly toward Jesus, but he's not a follower, or he's not what we would call a believer in Jesus now. Now, I don't want to ruin the surprise. I don't want to give you a spoiler. But we will see Nicodemus again later in this gospel in chapter 19. And there will become much clearer the effect that Jesus has had on Nicodemus. But here he is sort of a neutral figure. Nicodemus had gone to Jesus, John tells us, but he was also one of the Pharisees. That's what John tells us in verse 50. Nicodemus is bridging two worlds here. And he brings up an important point. He says, you know, shouldn't we actually hear Jesus and what he has to say before we judge him guilty? Now, that shouldn't be a very controversial statement. We understand in our world and in our life that that's the center of justice. You have to accuse someone, they get a chance to defend themselves, and then judgment comes. Right? It's not ready, fire, aim. You're supposed to give someone a chance to defend themselves. But it's not just our sentimentality as modern Americans. The Old Testament law required that also. In Deuteronomy chapter 19, Israel is required that the judge shall inquire diligently. They'll inquire whether someone is a false witness. And if someone is a false witness, they are not to be believed. Well, their response to Nicodemus is even more insulting than the other insults. If they were insulting to the officers, get a load of this. They say in verse 52, Are you from Galilee too? Essentially, are you a Galilean country bumpkin too? Now, search the scriptures. Everybody knows no prophet comes from Galilee. Now, what that means is they're saying Jesus can't be a prophet because he, doesn't, because he comes from Galilee. But what they're also saying is, if you're a Galilean like him, we don't need to listen to you either. Because you're not a prophet. You should just listen to us. But, John is being ironic here again. The truth is that prophets have come from Galilee. Jonah was from Galilee. Nahum was from Galilee. Their hatred of Jesus is so great that they're willing to do away with logical, rational thought. They're even willing to abandon their own scriptures to make a point. So what do we learn from these two groups and the divisions among them? There are divisions among both the people and their leaders. It's not their status that's the primary divider. It's Jesus. We see some that are close to Jesus, like those who think he's the prophet, like those officers... There are some who are closer still to Jesus, like those who say he is the Christ, or like Nicodemus. And yet there are those who are still very far away, like those who reject him and say he's not the Christ. And the Pharisees. What makes the difference 
Is it knowledge? Is it position? Is it upbringing? Or maybe wealth? What John shows us is that it is the heart. The Word of God and the claims of Jesus divide. There is no way around that. Jesus promised us that that would be the case. So when you tell others about Jesus, expect resistance. Some will reject him. Some will even divide from you. As long as we preach the real Jesus from the pages of the Bible, people will get angry and some will reject him. We cannot substitute a false, easy Jesus to get a fake peace. It also means that if you're here today and not sure of Jesus, you need to investigate. You need to look at the claims of Jesus. You need to read the Bible and see what Jesus actually said to make sure you actually know the claims of Jesus, the truth of the Bible, not just what you think or what others around you think, Don't be like those who are so unwilling to even hear Jesus that you miss the truth. Jesus calls you to come to him. Whoever believes in him will be satisfied. Let's pray.